Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Um, this is a very important topic because I know a lot of people, uh, you know, like, how do I get on the transplant list? What do I need to do? What is the process? And uh, it's quite scary. I mean, I've had four, so I'm a little bit more knowledgeable on the process, but uh, um, there's always new steps that are involved. And today we have Dr. Rafael Villacana. He's the medical director of the Loma Linda Medical Center Transplant plant center i think is a little redundant there and he's going to talk to us a little bit about the process so welcome to the show dr villacana thanks Lori. great to be back well thank you you're so knowledgeable and uh we're so thrilled that you um share your knowledge with us so so tell us a little bit about you know when somebody is diagnosed with kidney disease um their gfr and when they can get evaluated for transplant you know that actually comes up quite a bit um so I'm glad you asked because the first thing I want to make clear is that you don't have to be on dialysis to come to the transplant center to try to get on the list. So I'm glad you pointed that out, that it's more of a GFR or a kidney function level marker that can make you eligible to come and see us a little bit sooner. So again, you don't have to be on dialysis to get on the transplant list, but you do have to have a GFR of 20 or below to actually become listed on the transplant because that prevents people from say like anyone really could just go soon and like, oh, I'm at 60% or something like that, 60 GFR, and just get on the list, and that could clog up the list, as you know. Well, what if you're like a 22 GFR? Can I start the process to see you, or do I have to wait till I'm a 20 GFR? That actually comes up a fair amount of times, and so I'm glad you asked that too. Actually, you don't have to wait uh, that late. We've seen people typically... You know, in the 20s, it's rare for us to see people 30 or higher. We, we try not to see people that early, but we will see people who are in the low to mid-20s, and uh, maybe they have a family history of kidney problems, and they're worried that they're going to have the same outcome as maybe their, their family members, and that they want to, you know, get ahead. And so we will see them um, at that point. Uh, but uh, again, just a reminder, you can't actually accrue uh, time until you're 20 or lower. Well, and so if I have a GFR of 22 and then I start seeing you and then in three months it's, you know, 19, I basically bought myself three months time just by the initial visit of getting to know you and getting the process started, correct? So that 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 saves time. I mean, if it, but if you're, you stay at 22 for two years, uh, you just kind of wasted that visit, I guess, because you're going to have to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, but you're right. You're right. And actually, um, when I when we talk about 20 or lower, if you, sometimes kidney function does fluctuate, as you know, and sometimes someone can dip um, below 20 and then go back above 20. But if you were uh, 20 or lower at some point, I could use that to get you on the list. And okay. even if you go up um, to 22, 24, you could still you can actually build time. Okay. Well, and then I'm 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 thinking about milk in the system here. So if I totally hydrate myself before my blood work, would that, that allow me to have a lower GFR? 
No, I'm just kidding. Well, if you really, really hydrate, then it'll probably maybe make the GFR go up a little bit higher. Oh, it have to be the opposite, the so I have to dry. Okay, okay. I'm trying to figure out how I can can um, manipulate the lab work. <laughs> you know, you have to learn the system after a while, you know? Like, what do I have to do? This is being do? recorded, right? No. It is. Well, I used to do that when I used to get blood transfusions. Um, I used to drink a lot of fluid before they drew my blood to make sure I would qualify for that awful seven hemoglobin or something that you had to have to get blood. And I learned pretty quickly that that meant I felt good or didn't feel good. And I'd gone to get my blood drawn before and it was like 7.6. And I'm like, Ugh. Then I have to come back the following week. So, you know, you learn. You learn how to... You um, do. Um, and that, you know, I actually think that's a good thing because you're understanding the process and you feel like you're playing a role. So uh, maybe it's... Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it might be a little bit on the edge, but I, I think it's totally justified. <laughs> um, and, and you did hit it on the head, though, in terms of it, it being a process, and it does take time, um, and it can take months. And um, like you said, the earlier the better. And, uh, you know, some of the testing that we need takes time and things of that nature. So um, you obviously don't want to be wasting your time and you want to take advantage of anything that you, that you have available, like you mentioned earlier. Well, and to find a transplant center, um, you know, what do you suggest? Um, just find the one that's closest or uh, how, how would you go about it? If you were looking for ha to have a transplant, is there anything specific you would look for in a center? Well, first, I, you mentioned geography, and I think that's kind of important because if you, if you live really far from your transplant center, some people don't have a choice, but if you had a choice, it's probably better to be closer to your transplant center than further, of course. But uh, in, in some places where you have numerous choices, then, that, then you can go further than just uh, geography. Um, obviously, outcomes are available and, and performance is available online. It's all public. But in general, I, I do think it's better to be closer to your center if possible. But some people, and, and we, we have ourselves, we have people who, who live a few hundred miles away, and we are the closest transplant center. And so that's, um, that's I guess, what it is. But in general, it's, it's better to be close than, than further, of course. Well, and then people can multi-list. I mean, maybe we should talk about that a little later because let's go through the evaluation process before we do that. So a patient comes to see you, and what are you, basically, what would you be asking for them to do? To, to see us for the first time, and we've changed this over the years because we used to ask for a lot of information, but over the years we've tried to, to minimize it, to not make it so difficult to come by and see us the first time because a lot of paperwork, a lot of hurdles. So you, you, we try to eliminate that. But to, to see us for the first time, we do need to get a general sense as to your health and well-being. We will ask for some records from your dialysis unit and maybe um, your uh, medical providers as well. But uh, we try to keep it light and just the basics just so that we can get you um, in to see us as soon as possible. And, you know, if you're on dialysis... Um your dialysis unit can draw the blood for you, right? Like, I mean, I guess you do the initial testing of blood when they come to your center, but then just for compatibility, if you're on dialysis, the dialysis center can send it to you, correct? That's that's correct. And I think what you're referring to is uh, what we call HLA samples that uh, we draw once you're actually on our list. And we're just uh, checking on your immune uh, status, making sure it doesn't change because it can over time. But you're right. The dialysis unit is very important and very helpful and a great partner uh, for that. 
And for me, when I had to go through the fourth transplant process, I didn't wasn't aware that I had been exposed to hepatitis C. So I had to get a liver evaluation. I had to get a dental clearance. I had to get a gynecological clearance. I had to get a heart clearance. I had to, I mean, I was seeing so many doctors. Is that normal? It can be, and it used to be even more normal. Unfortunately, during, during your time, I, I remember that pretty clearly. We've changed that over the years. For instance, uh, the dental clearance, we don't really ask of that for everyone like we used to. So it's very rare nowadays to ask for that. I'd say the the heart is really um, probably one of the more important uh, areas before a surgery that we focus on. So that is kind of common to, at minimum, have uh, extensive heart testing and sometimes having to see the specialist. But uh, but you're right. Uh, I re- recall you, you saw a fair amount of individuals, and I think that's changed a little bit uh, over the years. Well, and I'm glad. I mean, I like to brag about this, but I have never had a cavity. So, um, but, you know, a lot of people do have dental problems, and if you have any type of gum or infection issues, uh, they need to be addressed because that's the biggest source of infection that can happen when you're transplanted. So, I guess you would, in my case, since I've never had a cavity, and I just like to say that because it's something that's right with me that I can brag about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, in my case, I had to get one, but I I really probably wouldn't need one under the new, um, you know, because I have such great dental health. I just need to say that. (laughs) Um, That you do. But uh, but you're right. Um, There's a lot of uh, dental concerns out in the community. But also importantly, a lot of it's out of pocket. Insurance doesn't necessarily cover the majority of those issues. So it's very, it's it's a hardship. And we definitely don't want to be creating hardships or, or hurdles to come and see us uh, and get the transplant process rolling. Well, and when they when you go to the transplant center, you see not only the doctor, but you also see the the nurse. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the social worker, too, because I've heard this a lot that a couple things the transplant center is looking for is, number one, you know, they want to know if you get transplanted, if you have somebody to help you once you're transplanted, get to and from the clinic, um, uh, be able to, you know, because, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious operation and you're not able to drive for the first little while. And I've heard some complaints from patients that they're very upset with that policy that you have to have a caregiver. And we've a, I've actually been a caregiver for another pa- one of my friends who got transplanted because the center required two caregivers. So he wouldn't miss any appointments. By for follow-up. So can you just shed a little light around why that is so important? Oh, yes, the famous caregiver discussion. Absolutely. So the reason is because at the beginning, transplant is pretty intense. So the recovery um, period is very intense. A lot of uh, clinic visits, a lot of testing. It's not unusual to have to go to the office, you know, after surgery twice a week for the first few weeks, first month and weekly really for a few months and it's it's uh, pretty taxing on, on, on someone and many times you can't really drive of course at the beginning mm-hmm. because you're still recovering maybe you have your wound is still healing um, you might have a catheter um, things of that nature so you definitely need need support and uh, it's going to be hard for someone to do that all on their own not only recover from a, a big surgery but also have to Take themselves to appointments and worry about all that. So it's really good to have to have support. And studies have shown that um, people who get transplanted without support, they don't do as well as those that have a better uh, support network. 
Well, and, you know, it's really interesting that you say that and there's studies to back it up because you're taking a precious organ. Like there is a huge wait list. And if you're not doing everything possible to to help it succeed, it's really unfair to the next person waiting in line if you're not going to keep it. Um, it's a difficult decision and choice, but, it, you know, there's just not enough to go around. That's right. Especially in California, as you know, the wait list can be 10 years plus. So it is essential that we try to maintain and nurture uh, every organ that, that occurs. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, over the years, and I've been working for a little bit, I have seen some outcomes that were not desirable because there wasn't really anyone to help someone out and uh, maybe couldn't come to the office couldn't come get that x-ray, couldn't pick up their medication, couldn't get blood tests, etc. And then before you know it, the organ, the kidney is not doing well. Right, because they can't get access to... Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. I mean, I've I've had some of those difficult discussions with people who have called us and they get upset with me because I'm like, you know, that I, I stand with your transplant center. If you do not have a neighbor or go join a you know, go join a community organization or something, make some friends. Um, you need to do that. And if you're, if you don't have anybody around, you need to do that. Um, I want to move a little bit on to like financial issues. Do, do those ever play a role? Like, um, we're denying somebody to get on the transplant list? Yes. Um, it does occur, unfortunately. And again, the same issue is, um, if maybe, in general, someone, of course, has some insurance, but our concern is being underinsured. So if, uh, say, someone has an insurance, but they need a secondary, which is something that I think you've heard of quite a bit. Right. And uh, people are like, well, why do I need a second insurance? Well, it's because the first insurance will pay sometimes 80% of the costs. And one might say, okay, that's really good. And I'll cover the 20%. But in reality, when the 20% is a very, very high, crazy number, we won't put someone in that position to uh, be financially ruined, basically, by receiving a transplant. Right. Yeah, because um, what does a transplant cost? Like, what's the average? Do you know, or should we even mention it? I don't really even... It, it, I think it's around 100000 I yeah, think. Yeah, it's uh, at least 80 plus. Yeah, I think that was a little more expensive, because... Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's up there, and but it's cheaper than having dialysis, so... Um, you know, there's a big push for, you know, a lot of the insurance companies want you to get transplanted. Um, uh, the next thing I was thinking about is if you've had any previous addiction problems or, uh, I guess, non-compliant issues of not showing up to dialysis, how would you, how would you address that? In general, and you know me, um, I'm, we're pretty open and we try to give people a second chance. We do know that over time, sometimes people just don't follow through with, with what they're supposed to do, uh, be doing, and they uh, maybe lost a prior transplant years ago because of noncompliance, or maybe they're in, in kidney failure because of not following recommendations and things like that. But yes, it is important because past behavior does kind of predict future behavior, and we try not to um, allow someone to lose their, their kidney because they were they're not you know they weren't following uh, recommendations but so it, it is important our social workers our dietitians they um, can kind of key in on on some behaviors that might give us a hint that uh, someone is maybe not following uh, recommendations issues like skipping dialysis not taking their uh, phosphorus binders at dialysis cutting their dialysis time short 
those are the kind of things that we do kind of pay attention to. Well, and, you know, in reality, um, it, it's difficult because you, you know, I've taken, I take medication. It's like brushing my teeth. I mean, I'm so used to taking medication. Um, if I was ever told that I didn't need to have any medication, which will never happen probably in my lifetime, I probably would put little candies there because I would feel like I'm not, I'm, I'm incomplete because I'm, I'm so used to taking medication. But, uh, but it is a reality because, the immunosuppressant medication, and I've heard this story before, and you have too. Well, I didn't take it for two weeks, and I was fine. Or somebody says, uh, um, oh, I didn't take my meds. I skipped a dose. And maybe you can explain what happens just because for people who are, you know, what happens when you don't take your medicine with a transplant? What's, what happens to your body? Well, in general, what will happen is is uh, your immune system will notice that the kidney came from the outside. Right. And that's what you don't want. You don't want your immune system to recognize that your transplant uh, came from somewhere else, someone else, and that's exactly what you want to avoid. The medicines help us uh, prevent that. So when you don't take your medicines, your immune system starts to get uh, agitated, irritated, will look around, and will notice that there's an organ um, inside, and, and we'll go after it. You're right, though. We all hear, hear stories about people that, you know, didn't take their medicine for a week or two weeks or even a month, and maybe not much happened. But everyone is so different that uh, I've also heard of stories of maybe two days, one or two days of not taking their medicines, and they reject. Everyone is very, very different. I wish I knew what everybody needed and and how much, but since we don't really know exactly, it, it's you just definitely don't want to tempt your immune system because once it does get irritated, it really uh, hard to get it uh, back. Well, and one of my um, friends, I mean, she was, uh, she's been since transplanted since then, but as a young girl, she got a perfect match kidney from her brother, and uh, she didn't take her meds for almost nine months. And she got a cold, and her kidney was gone. And it, it you know, and she's written articles, and she feels so horrible, and uh, but it was such a great match, but as soon as she got some kind of infection or cold, it kicked up her immune system, and then it looked around and said, oh, there's a foreign kitty in the body, and they couldn't stop the rejection. Um, and I, I try to explain that to patients because um, I always look at my tacrolomus level, and everybody has different levels. But you want to maintain a consistent level in your body, and if it dips, it's, it's inviting the antibody to find the kidney. <laughs> it's like um, you got to keep the curtain up with the antibody, the, with the uh, with the tacrolomus or whatever mycophenol, whatever the medication you're taking. You draw certain levels in your blood, and I've had uh, patients also tell me that, oh, my doctor says I'm not taking my meds. Well, you can tell if they're not taking their meds, right? You can tell, although it's not always obvious, unfortunately. So the most obvious one, like you mentioned, is uh, checking uh, certain medication levels in the blood. But sometimes what people will do is they won't take it for a while, and then right before the visit, they will load up on it to make it look like they're taking it oh, like wow. daily. And so that's kind of something that over the years people have done. But at the end of the day, the immune system won't forget. The immune system won't forget that the kidney came from the outside, and thus the medicines are really vital to keep your transplant going. 
Well, and, you know, it's interesting. I had a friend that, or, or one of the members in our group, they um, lost a lot of weight and they didn't actually get their blood drawn and they've had some problems with being nephrotoxic, which has impacted the transplant. So I guess this is more of a post-transplant topic, but if you have any changes in body weight or anything, your medications need to be adjusted accordingly, correct? I mean, because it's based on your body weight. That's right. It, it, um, things do change and we do need to sometimes uh, adjust the medicines. And I, and I think importantly, though, you mentioned like side effects and toxicity. If that's what's happening and that's what's leading someone to maybe not want to take the medicines, let us know because many times we can either adjust the dose or we could uh, maybe pick an alternative that works better for you. But if we don't know, sometimes we find out when it's too late. Right. I mean, once once those antibodies... So let's talk a little bit about antibodies. So if... Uh, and I think, you know, I think we all know that, but people who are listening, they may have been told, oh, I have a lot of antibodies. I can't get transplanted. Okay, let's dispel the myth right now. <laughs> well, here you are. <laughs> I know. 100%, right? <laughs> yes. What the antibodies really mean is that your immune system is, is more aware and maybe a little bit more hypervigilant than other uh, people's immune systems. And how does that happen? It, it happens via maybe a prior transplant, maybe pregnancies, blood transfusions. Those are the bigger um, risks to, to develop antibodies. And in general, it is a little bit harder to find you a match, but it's not impossible. And um, people get uh, transplanted every day with high antibodies uh, across this country. So like you said, it, it is a myth that they can't get transplanted. It may be a little bit more difficult, but there are opportunities. And the way the allocation system changed about five years ago, I believe that it did um, go to some great length to um, to help the situation out. Yeah, no, it is. It's And, and I think it's important, too, that um, if you go to a center that... Uh, you say, oh, they have antibodies, you know, ask them how many they've done, how many transplants they've done with high antibodies. Because I always tell that to our uh, people who call me up. I'm like, well, the center you're going to, ask them how much experience they've had with treating people with high antibodies. And if given the opportunity, try to go to a center that has more experience. Um, because it's it's a medical practice, just like anything, right? You're, you're right, because um, sometimes there's, there's centers that aren't that comfortable with the antibody situation and uh, you just might be waiting there for a very, very long time and maybe uh, a center down the street might uh, have a different view on the same situation. Exactly. That is uh, that firsthand experience here. Um, what about if I've had prior um, cancer uh, diagnosis? What, what, How long do I have to wait to get on the transplant list? So a common question as well and um, it really depends on what kind of cancer, what stage in general, most cancers are going to be between two and five years wait time, uh, depending on the severity. But um, in general, like a breast cancer will be at least five years. Those are the more common. But some of some cancers, um, say like a typical skin cancer, there's really no weight other than melanoma. Uh, some kidney cancers that are very uh, localized, you know, mm -hmm. people wait three to six months for their clearance. So it really, really depends. I know. It's a, um, you know, I've had the situation where somebody had kidney cancer and they removed the kidney and then um, eventually they needed to go on dialysis or whatever, but they were able to get transplanted because the, uh, the, the cancer was localized. So it, it worked out well for them. Um, if, a, if a center denies me um, or a person is denied to get a transplant, um, can they just go to another center? 
uh, or do they share the history? Do they? You guys talk to each other, and they're going to deny me too? Am I wasting my time? <laughs> no, we're you're not definitely not. Someone's not wasting their time because what bothers somebody may not bother someone else. And uh, I've seen that uh, in the numerous places that I've I've worked in the past. So it's definitely good to get a second opinion. In terms of do we communicate? Uh, not directly. Uh, you know, transplant centers are kind of funny that way as we're a bit competitive. So so not, not directly, but we do share sometimes a similar online um, electronic medical records that we could see. But as long as I say what I'm meaning someone that's been declined elsewhere, I do want to know the reason. Um, but uh, just, to, just to know up front, but in general, we do keep an open mind. I think other centers are the same thing. Yeah, it's um, it's really personal. Some people have more expertise with more difficult patients, um, and and then other centers. So yeah, it's a medical practice. I tell everybody that you know, every place you go, they're always going to treat things a little bit differently. I wanna I wanna move on to a living donation because I think it's important. And uh, we mentioned early about the being on the UNOS transplant list. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Even if you have a living donor, you can't start the process until you're on the UNOS transplant list. So they get confused because they want living donors to be worked up at the same time they're being worked up to be on the UNOS transplant list. Can you explain why they can't do both? They have to be they have to be on the list before they can work up living donors. Yeah. So the real the real reason that we do recommend and ask that. Um, a living donor is not fully be evaluated before the the recipient is is uh, on our list or any anyone's list. We want to make sure that the candidate is appropriate for transplant. You don't want to really be subjecting a, a donor or a possible donor to a lot of testing without really knowing if the recipient is going to be okay to receive that that gift. So that's that's part of the reasoning. I know it's very frustrating. I, I do hear that comment from time to time as to why. Why can't my donor be evaluated, you, you know, but yet they haven't been on our, li- you know, listed? It's because we need to know about their heart. We need to know about the candidate's um, other issues before we can really go too deep with the donor. Um, but, uh, yes, that, that that's the reason. Well, and then how many living donors can you work up at once? Because people are like, oh, I have 10 living donors. I mean, you can't work up 10 living donors. <laughs> that does happen. So, you know, that, We're having that's a so family true. reunion, and we want you to come do a group visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that happens. So in general, um, you can evaluate a few, um, numerous people at the same time. Obviously, the more numbers, the more complicated it is for the team to try to sort out everyone, because not all the donors are on the same page and doing the same testing at the same timelines. Some might be just starting the process, others are near the end, and you definitely just want to move forward and and, um, and try to get uh, that person a transplant. But uh, yeah, you definitely can uh, can see uh, numerous uh, or evaluate numerous donors. At, there's Every center has got a number, a certain number, you know, anywhere between like maybe three, five, or six. But definitely, it, it gets challenging when it's uh, you know double digits, and it's not that unusual, especially in the era of Facebook and and you know and, and uh, social media. Well, and it's also too the person who's getting the transplant; they got to understand that 
you can't let them know what's going on with the living donor process. So they'll call you up and, hey, Dr. V, how's my living donors going? Did did my aunt call? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so, you know, is she going to give me a kidney? And Because there's all these family issues and it's, it's, it's difficult. So you keep the, you keep those groups separate, right? Like I can't find out about that um, for good reason. Super true. And as a matter of fact, we try to keep the groups so separate that, you know, if I really know the person really well that's on dialysis and needs a kidney, I'm not really supposed to be too involved, if at all, with the, the donor evaluation and, and that process to keep the, the team separate, to eliminate any bias. Um, and that that's correct. We the, the teams are separate, and we, you know, and try to just keep everybody um, moving forward and, and, and happy with the process. But at the same time, like you said, it is frustrating that sometimes I can't share information or maybe I'm not really allowed to know it. And I try and I don't even go there because I'm, I can only really advocate for the person that's on dialysis and say a, a different team member is advocating for the donor. Right. And I mean, this makes sense because it's, you know, it's so complicated. It's an emotional process and some family member may not really want to donate or feel uncomfortable, but, you know, mom wants the son to donate to the brother. I've heard all kinds of stories. Um, and the mom is trying to get the brother to donate to the other brother. And then um, the brother really doesn't want to donate. And so it, all this, all these things come up and it, it creates a really bad um, situation. So yeah, uh, Yes, family. You got to love <laughs> family. it. Family. Well, it's just like Thanksgiving dinner with like 20 pounds of problems on top of it so uh with a transplant so it's so true uh um i have a question about um you know once you're on the list and then my living donor come, what is the fastest i could get transplanted like is it a month oh, i mean like okay i'm approved on the transplant list and then i have a living donor uh typically what do you see is a good range to to you know you can't do it tomorrow obviously right um assuming so if we're talking about both parties being approved, if both parties are already approved, then it's really probably about a month if both parties are approved. But it's unusual. I think what the more common scenario that you're talking about is, say, the person that's on dialysis or nearing dialysis that needs a kidney, they're approved. And then they have people that are calling in and, and, and going through the process. That In that scenario, I'd say the average is between three and six months if okay. they're still kind of going through the process. But if both parties are approved, it could be in a month. And it's just really about, you know, what availability the transplant team, because you have to schedule it, you have to schedule time in the OR. And so it's, it's, uh, yes, it's, usually it's, scheduling <laughs> is at least a few weeks out, um, but typically within a month, there should be some type of date that's, um, that's open for, for the procedure. And if I get, you know, uh, and I hear this too, but somebody was saying, oh, I got a cold. You know, they're on the transplant list. It's a 10-year wait. Do you want to hear from the patients if they get a cold and they don't, you know, you don't call the center every time you're sick unless it's a long-term illness. Um, like if you're like for a couple of months, but you don't need to notify the center if you're just out for a few days because you're cold. Because if you get called and you have a cold, you're not going to get the transplant, right? That's just the reality of it. Right. So, yes, there's no need to call us uh, for just regular run-of-the-mill, hopefully short-term issues. But we'll call you because if, if there's a kidney that's on offer, we will call you and see how you're doing. And, you know, if it's like a, the minor sniffles and you're getting over it, you know, we might consider that. But if there's a fever, of course, we, we can't do the transplant, nor would anybody want to 
to proceed under, the, under those c- conditions. Well, and I think, um, you know, I want to kind of wrap this up because I keep getting more questions. I keep thinking of other things. But um, if you get the call, can you explain what if you get a call and you get an extended criteria kidney? Um, a lot of patients don't understand that. I just thought of that question of, uh, you know, hey, what what is that? What does that mean? Yeah, we should definitely do another uh, session on that. I, all, I think all, all so. Together we need to. Because, we'll just touch uh, but, upon. but briefly, so actually, the extended criteria that the naming of that type of transplant changed about uh, five years ago, and now it's called uh, high KDPI, which is kind of confusing. High kidney. What does it mean? The, the KDPI, uh, it's basically a score that's assigned to a uh, kidney uh, organ. I just learned extended criteria kidney. I was just so excited about that, and they changed the acronym. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, but uh, the higher the number, the the kidney is considered maybe a little bit uh, older and maybe with more issues. The lower the, the KDPI, the, the better the quality of the kidney. Now, the reason one might be offered and why one might accept that an older um, kidney or a higher KDPI kidney is to get off uh, the list and get off uh, dialysis maybe two, three, four years earlier than you would have otherwise. So that's why one would even go there. And it's not something that at least at our center that we offer to everyone. We go by the data, the studies that suggest who should and who should not uh, accept this kind of kidney. And that's kind of a one-on-one conversation that actually I just had about an, uh, an hour ago. So, um, but very important, but that's more of a one-on-one. We tailor it based on your situation, how long you've been on dialysis, your age, other medical issues and things of of that uh, nature. Well, and we should have another show on that topic because, uh, um, you know, uh, President Trump gave an executive order on increasing transplantation. They haven't quite read the rules for it, but I believe it's going to allow for more kidneys that could be higher K. KDPI, is that right? KDPI? That's right. Okay, I got it. I don't know what it stands for, but I got the acronym. (laughs) Um, So we need to do another topic on that so people will understand what that means. Um, So wrap up, I guess the final question, I hope I don't uh, come up with another question. I'm one of those patients that just comes up with more and more questions for the doctor. Uh, So if I get the call, what what should I expect? So they're going to call me and say, basically, you're on first, second, or third in line. Um, Just the process of that before we wrap up. Yeah, so the topic of the exciting phone call. So the call will come. So for those of you that are listening that are on dialysis or they're on our wait, on a wait list, you will hopefully get that call. And when you do, it'll typically start off with, you know, how are you? Is everything okay? Are you feeling well? Anything really changed since last time you came to the office? Kind of just sorting and feeling out the situation before they really go into detail about what's uh, on offer. And assuming, you know, we hear things that are, that are okay, then they'll begin to tell you, okay, this is what's happening. You know, we, there's a possible, possible organ. Um, they may give you some information. You can always ask, by the way, for more. Um, you know, we, we're definitely, um, you know, sometimes time is a little bit pressed and they might just give you a summary. But uh, we definitely have more information. If you, and if you would like that, um, usually it's it's pretty available, like such as, you know, where is the kidney coming from? How old is the donor? Uh, what were the circumstances of this donor being available? All those things are definitely um, available uh, to share. One thing that does come up, people think that they must be at the hospital in a half hour, an hour. And that's not true necessarily because sometimes there's a lag time between when that kidney might be available and when it even arrives. It could be out of state. 
and uh, there's a bit of time. Uh, sometimes there's not, not 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 that much time, and we'll, and we'll let you know about that. I've had people drive ten hours uh, to to get here for their transplant and still make it on time. I've had people fly. They were on vacation. They were in other parts of the country. A couple times even out of the country, and still able to make it in time for their transplant. Well, and I mean, a kidney is okay up to like 36 hours, but unfortunately, I mean, as said, I've had a situation where the person's on life support. So you have, if, if they're in, you know, you have a little bit more time when a, a donor's on life support. That's kind of gruesome, That's but, um, you know, they can plan things a little better than uh, the 36 hour. Isn't it 36 hour an organ can be out of, like a kidney can be out of the body? You know, there's a lot of, debate on that but uh, what you're referring That's to is the time from when it's, when it's actually been recovered <laughs> oh, so okay. on, on average people try to keep it around 24 hours or, or less okay. but um, depending on the circumstances and the quality of the kidney the better the quality the better the, the kidney the more it can tolerate uh, being out of the body uh, before it's placed into someone else and you're right 30 hours up to 36 it depends if uh, people place it on a pump after it's been recovered and that might uh, allow one to um, to take a little bit longer. So there's different, definitely different circumstances. So, yeah. And I guess um, when you get the call, you might be like first, second, or third, too. So sometimes you get some false alarms when you call. They're just backing it up in case the first person's not available, which could You're end right. up you getting and the it, kidney. So that happens. That's happened. We've all gotten those calls. Yeah, yeah. And don't don't lose hope because eventually you will be number one. Yeah, the fire drill, I call it. It's the fire <laughs> drill. Get you ready. Get your, you know, all your things and, you know, make sure you have your cell phone and all your medical records and your mail. If somebody take care of your animals, get all that ready. So, well, um, anything else that uh, I know we've come up with a couple of other should because I think extended criteria kidney is important. But I think, um, you know, it's a process you have to go through and uh, the outcome is so wonderful. It just got to push through it. So, yeah. And then maybe we can do a different session in the future where we can talk about different kinds of organs. We did touch upon the high TDPI uh, ECD kidney, and then there's the regular kidney, there's living donors, there's different types of situations. There's uh, what they call PHS increased risk uh, donors, basically donors that uh, maybe passed away with a, a substance abuse history and things like that that we can definitely talk about in the future. I think that would be fascinating because um, I've heard a lot of my um, peers, you know, they've, uh, the person, I mean, with the unfortunate opioid crisis, um, it's leading, unfor- you know, I mean, it's leading to more donors. And, and I often hear this from patients, I feel so bad, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, you didn't cause their death. I mean, it's, they were, you know, unfortunately they passed away and at least uh, you can, you know, it's just a, it's just a, a, a difficult topic. But yeah, let's bring that one up next. But um, in the meantime, for those of you who are, uh, you know, seeking a transplant, oh, I have one more question. Do you, can you self-refer to a transplant center? And I know the answer to this, but um, does the doctor, <laughs> I'm, I'm testing you now, I'm doing a quiz, but um, I think a lot of patients feel that their nephrologist or their doctor has to refer them. And, you know, that's a good scenario, but tell us in your own words. So you're right. Someone can self-refer. Um, probably our mo- most common referral source is actually the dialysis unit and the social work team. Um, they are very um, good at, at getting people referred to transplant centers. Um, a, a doctor could do that as well. And, of course, the patient uh, can do that as, um, as well, when they're, especially when they're looking at maybe multiple centers, 
maybe second or third opinion or or something that you, that you brought up early was maybe listing in multiple uh, transplant centers at the same time. Well, and I think, you know, just to touch on that quickly, multiple centers, people can list in different geographical regions of their organ procurement agency, but that's a whole other topic. But um, you can self-refer. I, you know, we're in California, and I know a lot of patients are listed here in Los Angeles area, but San Diego is a different area, and they go down there, and they just make an appointment and get listed there, which seems a little strange, but hey, it's a shorter wait time in different organ, um, different areas of the country. Uh, we have one of the longest wait times in Los Angeles, Riverside County, because it's such a, a need, right? Absolutely. You're, you're right. Uh, California has one of the longest wait times in the country. And actually, I do encourage um, those that have uh, connections, family, friends, um, in other areas, other uh, states, uh, that if they can get on the list there, I, I think that's also a positive thing, too. I know. I heard somebody went to St. Louis and got a transplant within uh, like two years. So it was very, very quick. So anyways, well, thank you so much. We could talk for a long time. And we thank you for your knowledge. You're, um, we're so glad to have you as one. Of, well, I'm so glad to, to know you and have a, somebody who's so caring about patients. So thank you. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.